homosexuality first before you make a judgment. What I'm, what I'm gonna about to say is this. Homosexual love is not legitimate love. Homosexual love is not legitimate love. As God has designed love, it's ungodly love. Now, the reason I'm, I, I, I kind of make that preface before I say that is the whole debate seems to be about love, love, love. Let's, we can love whoever we want to love. Well, if we're going to talk about love, let's talk about love. Let's talk about how God has designed love. That's why we, we did that, I did that scripture reading earlier. Homosexual love is love that is from the world, not from God. So the scripture reading from 1 Corinthians th 13, 4 through 7 is, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That great passage about love that Paul gave us. There are many passages in the Bible that we're going to see this morning that describe homosexuality as unrighteousness. So same-sex marriage is celebration, or in the words of verse 6 here, rejoicing in that which is unrighteous. It's rejoicing in a counterfeit truth, a counterfeit union that is not truth at all. So there in verse 6, it's not rejoicing with truth. It's rejoicing with non-truth because it's a counterfeit union between two members of the same gender as opposed to the true union that God has designed, the rich marriage union that God has designed between male and female. In Genesis 2-4, we are told that the marriage relationship is designed for the husband and the wife to become one flesh. God created a unique, special joining of the body and the soul of the male and the female, a husband and wife, to be united as one. That's why God said in Genesis 2-18, it is not good for the man to be alone. So God created Eve to be united with the man. God, God did not create a male to be united with Adam. He didn't create Adam and Steve, right? He created Adam and Eve so that Eve and Adam would be united as one. Male and female, as I said last Sunday, are more efficient for God's purposes when they're united as a, as a cohesive union as opposed to being separate. Two members of the same gender are totally unable to join, to unite, as God has designed them physically, has designed the marriage relationship for two people to be united physically and in their souls. Two members of the same gender are totally unable to unite in that manner that God has designed. But, as I said last Sunday also, there is an exception uh, to that principle that, uh, that the husband and wife or the male and the female are most efficient for God when they're united. The exception is the gift of celibacy, as the apostle Paul had. Uh, the gift of celibacy God gives, but that is the exception. It's not the norm. Now, because there's so much misinformation on this question of does God condemn homosexuality or does he not, we're going to look at a number of passages uh, that show clearly God's view of homosexuality. And you may need to strap your seatbelts on because some of these passages are kind of graphic, but they're in the Bible, so we're going to look at them. 
I, I know I keep repeating myself on, on this one point, but it's, it's so important I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going back to it. Before we look at these very strong passages about God's condemnation of homosexuality, I want to say again, God loves the homosexual. He hates homosexuality just like he hates every other sin. And so we should never be self-righteous uh, about our view on this or about uh, our quote-unquote respectable sins because they're not respectable. But we are supposed to discern right from wrong, and so that's what we're going to do here. There are two groups of passages, that I, the way I've divided them here this morning. The first group is the Sodom and Gomorrah passages where God issues this judgment and inflicts total destruction of these two cities because of their homosexuality, and those are uh, Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. The second group are passages where God condemns homosexuality just as a whole, and there's no mention of Sodom and Gomorrah in either one, uh, excuse me, in the second group of uh, passages. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19, verses 1 through 24. Genesis 19. And while you're thumbing there, let me just give you some context here. This passage tells us that God destroyed the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin of homosexuality. In the prior chapter, Genesis 18, God had told Abraham that he planned to destroy these two cities. The Lord said uh, to Abraham in Genesis 18:20 that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave, so in Genesis 19, we're going to see the consequences of that. Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, had come to live in Sodom with his family. Genesis 19.1. The two angels, these are two angels that appeared in the form of men, although they were angels, and they had accompanied the Lord in chapter 18 when the Lord appeared to Abraham. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening while Lot was sitting in the city's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face toward the ground. He said, Here, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Stay the night and wash your feet. Then you can be on your way early in the morning. No, they replied, we'll spend the night in the town square. Verse 3. But he urged them persistently. So they turned aside with him and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them, including bread baked without yeast, and they ate. Before they could lie down to sleep, all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom, surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Verse 6. Lot went outside to them, shutting the door behind him. He said, No, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Now, Lot himself is going to act wickedly in a moment when he offers up his daughters. So let's, let's see that in verse 8. Look, I have two daughters who have never had sexual relations with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them whatever you please. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Verse 9. Out of our way, they cried. And this man came to live here as a foreigner. They're talking about Lot. And now he dares to judge us. We'll do more harm to you than to them. They kept pressing in on Lot until they were close enough to break down the door. So the men inside, in other words, these two angels that were in the form and the appearance of men, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house as they shut the door. Verse 11. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house from the youngest to the oldest with blindness. The men outside were 
wore themselves out trying to find the door. Then the two visitors said to Lot, who else do you have here? Do you have any sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or other relatives in the city? Get them out of this place because we are about to destroy it. The outcry against this place is so great before the Lord that he has sent us to destroy it. Then a few verses later, in verses 24 and 25, God destroys these two cities by raining down fire and brimstone from the heavens and utterly annihilates them. Hundreds of years later, God takes the, the prophet Ezekiel and reveals more about the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah that God had inflicted back in uh, Genesis 19. So in Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50, we learn that the wickedness of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah started with the sins of arrogance and greed, and then it culminated, it peaked in the sin of homosexuality. In these verses in Ezekiel, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the Jews at that time, had become very wicked. So God was comparing them to the wickedness of Sodom, which is a shorthand way of saying Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, we read, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. God uses the word sister as a way of uh, comparing them very closely to Sodom. It's like saying, this is your close relative, your sister. You're just like your sister. You're just like the, uh, the men of Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, a, had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Now, some folks who don't want to read God's condemnation into uh, the scripture use Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 to say, look, God really didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. He destroyed it because of arrogance and greed. The problem with that reading is that it misses verse 50, where we're told they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. You see, the internal attitude sin of haughtiness or arrogance and the outward sins that we do with our hands and our feet and our bodies, they're linked. They go hand in hand. In other words, arrogance is the mother of all sins. All sin starts with the sin of arrogance. It's the person saying, I want to do what I want. It's my body. Why can't I do what I want with my body? That's the thought. And then the, the, the hands and the feet and the body just follow the thought. And just in case there was any doubt about Ezekiel, what Ezekiel was saying, the apostle Peter comes along in the New Testament and tells us that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to make an example of them so that future generations would run from homosexuality. So in 2 Peter 2, 6 through 9, Peter said, and if he had condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, now it's interesting that Lot gets called righteous here even though he had plenty of sins of his own, but it's probably a comparative kind of uh, situation here where in comparison to the wickedness of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot 
was righteous in comparison. But lots not the focus here. So uh, let's let's look at uh, let's get back to verse seven, which is the uh, the focus of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct—that's the homosexuality—of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day and day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous from punish uh, the unrighteous under punishment, for the day of judgment. Like the Apostle Peter, Jude comes along and says, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to make an example of them so that future generations would not get involved in homosexuality. Now, the Jude passage, which I'm going to put up here on the screen in a minute, refers back to an earlier time in Genesis, even before Sodom and Gomorrah. So we'll toggle back and forth between Jude and, and Genesis. In Jude 6... We are told, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This appears to be a reference to Genesis 6-4, where fallen angels disobeyed God's design and had sex with women in the days of Noah. In Genesis 6-4, we're told that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, there's some theological debate about who were the sons of God here in Genesis 6-4. But I believe when you look at 6-4, Genesis 6-4, and Jude 6 and 7, when you read them together, it becomes clear that the sons of God here in Genesis 6-4 those are fallen angels who had sex with women. So let's, let's look back at Jude 6 and see how these two relate. Jude 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, instead they violated their domain and had sex with women, as angels should not, right? It's God, angels, humans, animals is the hierarchy. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, in the same way as the fallen angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing punish the punishment of eternal fire. Jude's point is that similar to the way angels disobeyed God's design for sex, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah likewise disobeyed God's design. Similar to the way angels abandoned their proper abode, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah abandoned their proper place because they're to be with a lady, not with another man. A lady who's their wife, not with some other man. Now, I want to be clear. These passages in Jude and, uh, and the, uh, the letter from Paul, from a Peter, Second Peter, they're not saying that uh, uh, someone who's gay cannot be saved. Of course they can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Homosexual, heterosexual, tall, short, black, white, whomever, anyone can be saved because God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. 
All the person has to do is accept Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they go from being the enemy of God to being the daughter or the son of God. Now, some try and take a very narrow view of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they say, well, what God was doing was judging them for the sin of rape because that's what they were trying to do to the two angels who were in the form of men. And so these folks who don't want to see God's condemnation of homosexuality in the Bible, they say, well, God was really ju judging them for the, sum, for the sin of rape that they were attempting to do and not homosexuality generally. The problem with that view is that there are many passages, and we're going to look at uh, a number of them, that condemn homosexuality as a whole without any reference at all to Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's look at those. In Leviticus 18.22, God warns the Israelites not to engage in the various sinful acts that their neighbors are doing. And there's, there's a laundry list. Their neighbors, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, who were godless, who had no relationship with God, there's a laundry list. And God talks about incest and in the Bible, so we're going to talk about and bestiality and, and the, the different sorts of sins, and then God gets to the sin of homosexuality. So here in Leviticus 18.22, God says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. I'm not sure how, how the point can be made any more clear than that statement there in Leviticus 18.22. But let's, let's keep going. Let's look at some more passages, this time in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul provides a list of sins, and he includes homosexuality in this list. There the Apostle Paul says, as you can see up here on the screen, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Then we get to Romans 1. 19 through 27. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, 19. As you get there, let me give you some background here on these verses. In this passage, Paul explains how some people reject God despite God having revealed himself through creation, through the stars, through the mountains, through the sands, through the seas, through the trees, we see creation and we say that had to come from somewhere and the, and, and the person who created it is a person of order, person with a capital P, is a person of order, not of disorder. So creation reveals something about uh, God, reveals some of the attributes of God. And so what Paul explains is that homosexuality is the result of rejecting God. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if someone rejects God, then it's logical then they're gonna, that they're going to reject God's ways. It's logical that they're going to reject God's design. If I say, God, you don't exist, then I'm not going to be interested in what God has to say about my life or about his plan or about what he wants. 
So the passage reads as follows in Romans 1, 18. I meant to say verse 18, not 19. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Remember back to the verse about love in 1 Corinthians, those words unrighteousness and truth. That's a constant theme here. So for, God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In other words, through creation that, that the creator made. So that they are without excuse. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. When I see this word speculation, I think of the, uh, our, our modern era of, used to be a theory, and now it's declared as absolute fact, evolution, right? My great, 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 great grandfather to the thousandth power was a monkey doing monkey things in a jungle. If Paul were here, I think that's, that's what would come to mind when he sees this word, or when we see this word, speculation. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. we got plenty of those today. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. They made idols, little things that you could worship of a, of a human being or a reptile or something. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature Satan rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen verse 26 for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function. Remember how the angels abandoned their proper abode in Jude 6 and 7. So in, in verse 27, and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. All right. How does all this relate back to our home-based passage, our Romans 13, 1 through 7 passage? It all relates back to that because it, it tells us where the boundaries are for our obedience to our rulers, because there are boundaries. There is a limit to how far we go in obeying our rulers, as I, as I had mentioned before, uh, with respect to civil disobedience. There may come a time where you and I are told by our rulers to disobey the word of God on the issue of homosexuality. In other words, the government may tell us that we are required to support this wrong behavior, we're required to support homosexuality, when the Bible says that behavior is sinful. Last Sunday I talked about a baker in Colorado 
who was ordered by the state to support same-sex marriage, despite the Baker's uh, understanding, Christian understanding, that, that, that homosexuality is wrong. That Baker was uh, ordered to bake cakes to celebrate same-sex ceremonies. Here are a few more examples of what I would describe as persecution against Christians in this country because of their faith. The state of New Mexico fined a Christian photographer for refusing to take pictures to do a photo shoot for a same-sex ceremony. The state of Washington sued a Christian florist who didn't want to make a floral arrangement for a same-sex wedding. The state of Oregon fined a Christian couple who are bakers because they didn't want to make a wedding cake for a, uh, a lesbian ceremony. And so the state of Oregon fined them for the quote-unquote emotional harm that they caused the lesbian couple. Or how about the personnel and county clerk offices around the nation who have been ordered, essentially, by the Supreme Court of the United States to issue gay marriage licenses. Many of those county clerks and the personnel in their offices are Christians, and they desire to stand behind the biblical definition of marriage. Now, many of them in the, the county clerk situation have been able to find a way, and, and, and it's good for them, I'm glad they have, find a way to not violate the Supreme Court's order and to not violate the word of God. And the way they've been able to navigate this tricky situation is there are other folks in some of these county clerk offices that perhaps they're not Christians or perhaps they, uh, they don't stand behind the biblical definition of marriage. And so the other folks are the ones who actually issue the licenses. But the, mar the, the, the Christian who works in that office who doesn't want to issue the license doesn't have to because someone else can issue the license. So I, I applaud them for being able to navigate that, those tricky waters and uh, not having to violate the Supreme Court's order and, and being able to, to figure out how to, how to deal with this. We should do what those employees of county clerk's offices are doing. We shouldn't be looking for a fight on this topic. We should avoid the conflict if there's a way to avoid it. There's not always a way to avoid it, like those, uh, those florists and those photographers and those bakers. For them, they have no choice. Do it, the state of New Mexico says, or Colorado, or Washington, or Oregon. And for them, they don't have that wiggle room that some of the folks in county clerk's offices have. So they're in the tough spot, and we should be praying for anybody who's in this spot where the state orders them to support something that is sinful and their Christian understanding of, of how that's wrong puts them in a tough spot because they are being persecuted and they uh, uh, are engaging in civil disobedience. A lot of these folks that I mentioned from these other states, they've said hooey. They didn't use that word hooey, but, <laughs> but they said, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna engage in civil disobedience. And so I, I, I applaud them. Outside the US, a few years back, there was persecution against a Swedish pastor who was sentenced to jail under the Swedish hate crime law. And he was sentenced to jail because in a sermon, he preached the biblical view about homosexual behavior, very similar to what I've done the last two Sundays. It's also interesting to see what the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court has to say on this topic. 
he recognizes that people of faith will now be treated differently by their government and not in a good way. I don't want to get too much into the details of this uh, Supreme Court, this long Supreme Court opinion on same-sex marriage, but I do want to spend a few minutes looking at what Justice Roberts said. There are nine judges on the court. Five voted in favor of gay marriage. They're called the, the majority because they won the day, and four voted against. Chief Justice Roberts was one of the four who voted against same-sex marriage. And although I do not always agree with uh, Justice Roberts' opinions, on this one he was dead accurate on. Roberts wrote an opinion about how he dissented or how he disagreed with the majority's ruling, those, those five judges who voted in favor, who won the day, because Roberts sees the handwriting on the wall about how our government will now treat people of faith. Here are a few quotes from his opinion where he voted against same-sex marriage. Roberts says, today's decision creates serious questions about religious liberty. Many good and decent people oppose same-sex marriage as a tenet of faith, and their freedom to exercise religion is, unlike the right imagined by the majority, actually spelled out in the Constitution. His point is, you five judges have just pulled out of your ear some new right that was never in the Constitution. And that new right of same-sex marriage conflicts with a right that's actually spelled out in the Constitution and has been written in the Constitution for the last 230 years, almost. That right that's spelled out in the Constitution is the right to free exercise of religion. So Roberts is pretty fired up here, and, uh, and I'm with him. Uh, the next quote is from Roberts where he says, the majority graciously, he's being sarcastic here, the majority graciously suggests that religious believers may continue to advocate and teach their views of marriage. The First Amendment guarantees, however, the freedom to exercise religion. Ominously, that is not a word that the majority uses. Robert's point here is, look, what the, what the court's saying is, yeah, you can teach your faith. You can teach that, uh, that marriage is between a male and a female. But if those people of faith want to live out their faith to do what the Constitution says they can do, which is the free exercise of religion, now those people of faith risk violating the new law that the court has made up. One last quote from Roberts, and this last one is a doozy. It's maybe his biggest point of why he's so upset with the majority's ruling, those, those five judges that, that rule the day. By the majority's account, Americans who did nothing more than follow the understanding of marriage that has existed for our entire history, in other words, the history of the United States of America, have acted to disrespect and subordinate and inflict dignitary wounds upon their gay and lesbian neighbors. These apparent assaults on the character of fair-minded people, the people of faith, these apparent assaults on the character of fair-minded people will have an effect in society and in court. It is one thing for the majority to conclude that the Constitution protects a right to same-sex marriage. It is something else 
to portray everyone who does not share the majority's better informed understanding as bigoted. That's where we've arrived. That's where we've arrived in our nation. Our rulers now label people of faith who stand behind the definition that has existed for millennia of marriage, which is between one man and one woman, those people of faith have now been labeled as bigots by our rulers. There are times where God requires civil disobedience from his people, and as our culture celebrates sin and mandates support for sin, a time may come where you and I will be required to stand our ground for God. If and when that time comes, we should stand our ground in God's word, in God's power, and in humility. Not in arrogance, not in self-righteousness, not in a holier-than-thou attitude, but in humility. As our society ridicules God and profanes his name, persecution will come for the believer who speaks and honors God's word. Now, we shouldn't get bitter about the, the uh, current state of affairs, even though they are dark. And they'll get darker if we can maintain this path of rebellion against God, if, if our culture does. We should view this as an opportunity, as an opportunity to serve the boss, the big old capital B, to serve God, in other words. God has caused us to be born in this time period, in this era, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, here, now, and he wants us to serve him with the resources that he's given us. Now, something else that I'd like to point out is we shouldn't, as I said a moment ago, be looking for a fight on this topic. Don't go looking for persecution. If God wants to bring persecution into our lives, he will. If he won't, then we won't have persecution. Don't get out and try and push the airplane for God. Just rest in his word, rest in his power. Just be cool in God's provision. He'll bring opportunities in our lives for us to serve him in the way he wants us to serve him. That may involve persecution. It may not. So that concludes our study on the question of what we're supposed to do when governing authorities try and require us to violate the word of God. In our last few minutes together, let's finish out our passage in Romans 13. Please turn there in your Bibles. In Romans 13, we'll finish out verses 6 and 7. In Romans 13, 6, Paul says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, this is kind of painful to read, isn't it? I mean, are we sure somebody didn't slip that into the text somewhere about paying taxes? No, it's in the Scripture, so we're supposed to obey it. Paul starts this verse with the phrase, for because of this. The this here that he's referring to is, is what was just mentioned in verse 5, the immediately preceding verse, about for conscience's sake. So we're supposed to pay our taxes on account of our conscience. In other words, on account of our relationship with God, how we're supposed to obey God, we're also responsible to follow God. And one of the things that God tells us to do is obey your rulers, and one of the ways we obey them is paying taxes to them. This is, of course, consistent with Jesus' statement in the Gospels, render unto Caesar 
that which is Caesar's. So one of the principal ways to submit to a ruler is to sign that check to our good buddies at the IRS for the taxes that our ruler imposes on us or our rulers impose on us. Uh, you know, maybe it's not just the IRS, it's local taxes and all the other fees and charges that we pay uh, in our daily life. That's an act of submission to our rulers. I'm not saying we have to jump for joy when we sign that check, but nor are we supposed to be bitter. We're just supposed to do our duty, sign the check, mail it off, and move on to the next thing. In the last part of verse 6, Paul repeats his statement from verse 4 that rulers are servants of God. In verse 4, he called them ministers of God. Here in verse 6, he calls them servants of God. This is the same idea. God intends the rulers, servants of God, ministers of God, same principle. God intends rulers to act as his agents in maintaining order in a society. Paul then indicates that the rulers in their function as servants of God are, devoted, are devoting themselves, he says, to this very thing. There's some theological discussion about and, and debate about, well, what does this phrase, the ver this very thing, refer to? I believe it refers to everything that's related to the ruler's act of governing, the where they encourage good behavior from verse 3, where they discourage bad behavior from verse 4, even the collection of taxes in verse 6, all of it. Paul's saying that rulers have been empowered by God as his servants in governing others. And as such, rulers are su supposed to be dedicated to this purpose with its many functions. Finally, we get to verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And I know our knee-jerk reaction is at the end to say, Come on, Paul, how can you keep talking about taxes here? <laughs> but he says, yes, I'm going to do that because there's a point that I want to drive home, which is submission to rulers. What verse 7 is doing is it's showing us all these different examples of how we submit to our rulers. Pay them the taxes that they imposed on you. Pay them the customs, or another way of saying fees or charges, tolls that, you, uh, th that they've charged. Render fear or respect that's due to them and render honor that is due to them. These are obligations that we owe our rulers because God has given them the authority. So in closing this morning, the point of Romans 13, 1 through 7, is that we're supposed to submit to our rulers because God has put them in place. It's God's will for our lives to submit to our rulers. God's put them in place to keep order in a society. But... There's a limit on our submission to rulers. It's not blind obedience that we're supposed to have because it's God who is the ultimate authority. He's the one who appointed the ruler. He's above the ruler. If the ruler requires us to disobey the word of God in the only way, and I mean only way, if there's no wiggle room there, like there is in the county clerk situation with these gay licenses, these gay marriage licenses, if there's no wiggle room there, then we're supposed to obey the word of God, which is to say, engage in civil disobedience. And when we do that, we need to be prepared to accept the consequences, the punishment from our ruler for disobeying our ruler. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over in the book of Daniel. 
They were prepared to be thrown into the fiery furnace for their disobedience, their civil disobedience of King Nebuchadnezzar. They were respectful to the king, but they said, King, we're not going to violate the word of God. So as it turns out, God spared them. They didn't know that in advance. They didn't know that they were going to be spared when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But God did spare them. Like those gentlemen, we're also to be ready to obey God. The believer is first accountable to God, and then second accountable to the ruler in that order. We're supposed to stand our ground, stand our ground in God's word, in God's power, and in humility. Not in arrogance, not in self-righteousness, in humility. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask that you empower us. If the moment comes where uh, you want us to serve you in a manner uh, where we have to engage in civil disobedience, then we ask that you give us wisdom, give us judgment, give us courage. As, uh, as other people in the uh, nation are already undergoing this, and we ask that you uh, take this word and make it a source of uh, challenge and nourishment for us, and we thank you for the opportunity to uh, be able to study your word, and we ask that we uh, have it for uh, many generations to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.